Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. For me, sex is like uh, writing a poem. It takes me to some places I don't want to go, but it's always very illuminating and teaches me about my own needs and places that I need to work on. This is Death, Sex, and Money. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. Sandra Cisneros is one of America's most celebrated coming-of-age writers. Her book, The House on Mango Street, about a young girl growing up in Chicago, is a staple in American classrooms and has been translated into more than 20 languages. But I wanted to talk to Sandra Cisneros not about adolescence, but a different life phase, being in her 60s. A lot of her poems in her latest collection take place there. It's called Woman Without Shame. Sandra is now 67, and she began her 60s shamelessly when she organized her own party in the streets of the Mexican town where she now lives. Well, I always wanted to jump out of a cake. Uh, And so I decided, well, it's my birthday, and I have to make things happen. You know, if you have never had a birthday like the one you want, it's your fault because you haven't organized it. So I organized a party in which everyone had to dress as pastry, and I wore a cake skirt, and we all went to a restaurant, and then we ran downtown to have mariachis uh, serenade me, which is the best way to have a birthday, I think. And, And then we danced with strangers in the kiosk because it was a dull night, and people wanted to have something happen. So when they saw people come into the square dressed as cakes, well, that was just right. <laughs> so that's what I did for the 60th. You describe a, a, a cake skirt, but the picture I saw, it really was a whole, almost looked like a full body contraption. You were a multi-layered <laughs> cake. <laughs> it was made by a family that makes piñatas. Oh, amazing. <laughs> yeah. When I talked with Sandra, she had arrived back home from a whirlwind trip across the United States for her book tour, and she was just beginning to decompress. I'm in my my kimono, mm. you see? We talked on Zoom. Her kimono was black with bluish flowers. 
I just got home Monday night, so I'm not quite recovered. I went to the hot springs and I went to the chiropractor and the masseuse and the acupuncturist. I'm just doing all this self-care because it takes a long time for me to to decompress from being with people. And when you're sort of re-entering your own space, do you have a sort of ritual or a practice other than kind of going to the chiropractor? Do you do a certain set of things? Yes, I throw myself on my bed <laughs> and I just stay there like an odalisk <laughs> posing for my painter. I could stay there for days if I didn't have to get up and use the restroom. But I, I just stay there and I indulge and I have my meals there and my dogs play there and we just snuggle. And anything I want for the first 24 hours, I'm allowed to eat. Wow. How often in, in a year do you have these reentries? How common oh, is this? Oh, well, in the past, it used to be every other month. Uh-huh. Uh, but now, uh, well, I, I did go out in May and I went out in August. It's hard now because I'm older and I have been traveling alone since I was 27. And I really need to travel with somebody. That's something I'm aware of because physically... It's, you know, I'm like uh, the Circus Cisneros hauling all these bags. <laughs> I'm hauling, and that's why I had to go to the chiropractor and go to the acupuncturist. But uh, now I'm seeing at this uh, age, I, I would like somebody to be on the plane with me and to be in the airport and to help me put the bags up and take them down. And in Mexico, you have Diablitos are the little, you know, carts. And the Diableros are the people that run these little carts. So the Little Devil is the name of the cart. And hmm. the Diableros, which would be the devilers, are the ones who run this cart. And they run up to you and say, Little Mother, do you need any help? There's no one asking me when I come into the States. Little Mother, do you need any help? Nobody. Nobody even sees you when you're past a certain age. So I need to hire an author escort. So you said you've been traveling alone since you were 27, so that's 40 years. Yeah. Um, how old were you when you first experienced solitude? I think I must have been 11, 12. Mm -hmm. I think that's when you start becoming aware that you're uh, a solitary human being when you're about 11 or 12. Mm -hmm. That's when I started writing. Where would you go? Uh, I would go inside a book. <laughs> I would climb a tree. It's kind of strange to think about like the neighborhoods I grew up in, in you know, real hardcore urban neighborhoods. But we always had weekends at the Grant Park or at the Garfield Park Conservatory, or you know, maybe we would walk to Humboldt Park in our neighborhood. So there was always a communion with nature. And those moments were very intense for me. I felt a need. I had to translate this into language. Hmm. That's beautiful. Like the feeling of feeling overcome by something beautiful or wondrous that you're seeing. Yeah. And I still feel um, overjoyed when I experience something as beautiful as a grasshopper inside a rose. And how do you get there? What a good house that is. Why didn't I think of that? Huh. <laughs> oh. And why was just like saying to your family, look at that sunset? Why didn't that scratch the same itch? Like, well, nobody listened. <laughs> oh. Everybody talks in my house, but very little listening. Uh-huh. 
Were there other people like that in your family who liked quiet? No, everybody liked a lot of noise. Mm-hmm. Everybody, even my father, who understood me completely, you know, he would turn on his television and watch uh, Spanish language television. And, um, you know, my mom would listen to uh, radio and my brothers would have televisions going. Maybe they would be playing instruments because they were musicians too. And they had like a little garage band. Uh, I mean, I was very well loved uh, and one could say I had a very good childhood, but I, I I felt things too much and too deeply. So sometimes I I didn't feel like I could share things with my, my certainly not with my brothers and never with my mother. Why not with your mother? My mother was like a time bomb. You know, if you went near her, she was very upset being a mother. You know, she obviously didn't want to be there and didn't want to be cooking or you know, she was only happy when she was up at museums or listening to music or singing an aria. You know, she was a very frustrated woman uh, who found the wrong life and she would have liked my life. Hmm. And so you, to share something that was beautiful with her was not something that she had time for, even though that's in well, her own not way. not even time. It, it wasn't like, you know, um, my mother was like a, a different sensibility. She wasn't that sensitive about the things I was. And didn't understand why I was sensitive about things, you know. She just thought I was a um, crybaby. Uh-huh. I was not strong like her. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And your six brothers, you didn't find? Oh, I don't even think they know who I am. Maybe one. One brother does, perhaps. Sandra left home for graduate school in Iowa. And when she came back to Chicago, her parents expected her to marry and to become a mother. Sandra envisioned a different life for herself. You know, it was kind of like being a a prisoner escaping. Mm. You you had to have a plan. So initially, I lived in another basement apartment in a building that my father owned and rented the first floor. And on the second floor, uh, my oldest brother, who was married, lived there. So that was a compromise. I lived there for about Uh, a year, maybe less, I I don't remember, but long enough so that my father would come to terms that his only daughter was moving out. And he felt like, well, at least my son can keep an eye on her. Uh, But that got too, that got old after my brother started spying on me and creating scenarios that didn't exist and imagining things that hadn't happened. And I, I just felt I had to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to make sure when you say your brother was making up stories of things that weren't happening, was he being overly protective or was he, what was happening? I would have guests sometimes that would sleep on the couch and my brother would imagine that they were my paramours. I see. Um, and he would tell people you were having paramours, which would become a problem. He would tell my father. Yes, that didn't go over well. He was a squealer. <laughs> started your 20s in the mid-70s. When you think about your life and the choices available to you, for you, how important was birth control? Oh, super important. Uh, Because I feel as if um, for women from my culture, you know, that's not something that's even discussed. My mother didn't use birth control. That's why she had seven kids. Eight, if you count my sister who died. So I had 
to find information on my own. You know, I would look at uh, how white women lived, and I thought, you know, wow, you know, that that's um, cool, but it's it's not going to work in my life. I have to find some sort of different model. I really couldn't find anything at that point in my life in common with the women's movement because it didn't speak to women of color and women of my class. So who who do you recall kind of like learning about the pill from or even knowing where to go? Oh, I didn't want the pill. Oh, what was your birth control of choice? Uh, it was a diaphragm. I, I did a lot of investigation through books like Our Bodies, Ourselves, and uh, from the Emma Goldman Clinic in Iowa City. You know, I had sexual relations when I was an undergraduate, but I didn't have birth control till I was in graduate school. Is that crazy? Wow. You know, to me, that's like Russian roulette. But, uh, you know, this is the thing that we don't talk about. Uh, so I got information where I could, but it was about my own reluctance to go into a clinic uh, since I had never, I'd never even examined myself with a mirror. There was a sense of shame Mm -hmm. and I had to overcome that, you know, for a long time. But, uh, you know, I want to talk about it with women because I think it's so important that we not be ashamed and we don't get information from our boyfriend because that's where I was getting my information from. It was not reliable information. So I learned a lot and uh, I just felt like the pill seemed like it hadn't. They hadn't done enough experimentation on it to see what the side effects were, mm-hmm. and that women were being used as guinea pigs. So I just felt, hmm, I don't know. I'm I'm not a hundred percent on board with that. And when you think about that time of your life when you were beginning to explore your body, begin to have sex. Um, when do you think you really sort of started to experience pleasure with other people? Well, I think I experienced pleasure before I experienced penetration, you know, mm-hmm. because when you're with someone who wants to have sex with you, usually men are not like tantric masters. <laughs> they just do what they have to do and, you know, you leave you behind. So I felt like I had more sexual pleasure when I was a virgin, to tell mm. you the truth. Oh, because it was slower. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, you had more foreplay, you know, you didn't do the deed. And so, you know, you, it was just better. I felt like um, uh, through the years that most of the men I met didn't know what they were doing. Mm-hmm. But you didn't know what you were doing either. So there you go. Yeah. And sometimes when you're lucky, you find that partner where it's okay to be Well, I, I did not. Yeah. I did not for a long time. So... Uh, I, I think that um, I think I was very lucky to find someone later in my life, in my mid twenties, but not not when I began my sexual career and when I was in my teens. No, and I think also too, you know, there's just so much guilt, so you don't you aren't really um, taught, or you don't have the privacy. Uh, uh-huh. If you grow up in a house like mine, you know, uh, there's no privacy when you're growing up in a working class house. So, you know, you can't you can't explore yourself until you live alone. And that takes a long time for people who don't have a lot of money. In her writing, Sandra describes several of her lovers, including a recurring one she calls the Chicago nemesis. I had multiple love affairs because I wanted to protect my heart from the Chicago nemesis, Sandra wrote in her 2015 essay collection, A House of My Own. She described, The less he needed me, the more I wanted him. Independence inspires admiration, 
and admiration is an aphrodisiac. You meet people that are reflections of who you want to become. And uh, you're attracted to them because they're who you want to be. But you don't realize that at the time. You know, you just think you're in love. And now, in retrospect, I think, oh, well, this was a, a, a painful relationship, but it took me to places. It made me a voyager. It made me want to be international. It made me want to be an activist. But when I look back, I, I surpassed him in many ways, in all ways, I suppose. <laughs> but, you know, now, in retrospect, I realize I made him up. And when you say maybe I made him up, you mean the set of... I mean that he's nothing that that I thought he was. He He's just an archetype, and he stands for uh, the Father Almighty and my Father's approval. Mm-hmm. That That's what I see now, and uh, now that I'm 67, I think, wow, that's interesting. Um, I want to understand, about how long was this sort of romance present in your life? Mm. Since I was 25? I guess and maybe till I was fifty-five, oh, maybe till time. now, maybe till you, this morning. You know, I haven't done all of the you know the thera- therapy that one has to do to understand why we get into disastrous relationships. Because the way that I do that therapy is to write about it. You know, why do we uh, pick the destroyers? You know, people who destroy us that we want to be destroyed by, and. Uh, you know, how do they continue to haunt us in our lives? Not people that are dead, people that are alive that haunt us. Why does that happen? Does your Chicago nemesis know that's his nickname? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. But see, the funny thing is that when I write about people, uh, like my long poem in my new book, You Better Not Put Me in a Poem, uh, people that are not in it think they're in it. I know. Oh, that's the one who talks about the lover who put his hand on his hip during sex and acted like Mr. Big stuff. (laughs) Oh, my, I know. I pick some real doozies. Uh, well, I love, but the, you you write about both the ones that are really hard to shake, and then there's other lovers you describe as paso tiempo, you know, just oh, like. Oh, paso tiempos, <laughs> yes. Well, you know, I'm so glad I had so many, and I hope I have more, because, you know, I, I think that we learn so much about ourselves when we're in relationships. Uh, you know, I, I see sex as being very spiritual. Mm-hmm. I really do. I, You know, the, levitating. If sex isn't levitating, what good is it, right? You know, I mean, it is a kind of coming out of yourself and merging with another person when when it's really sacred. You know, like at this age, I don't want to waste time with chiquillos anymore, with little ones. You know, I'm talking about boys. You know, I don't I don't have time for people that aren't at my level anymore. I'd rather not have any more lovers than uh, be with someone who is not at my level emotionally and spiritually and sexually and and I just I just don't have time mm-hmm. I could write a poem instead I could be writing a new book of poetry coming up Sandra shares how her view of relationships both romantic ones and friendships has shifted as she's aged I feel like 
men and women that come into my life for whatever reason, when they're not supposed to be in my life anymore, some horrible trauma, disaster, exploding cigar happens. And I understand, okay, we have to part. And I'm sorry. You know, sometimes we don't know why. And only in retrospect did you think, oh, I was supposed to learn this and that person couldn't learn it with me. And and she was supposed to learn this and I couldn't learn it being alongside her. So our friendship had to diverge. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Sandra Cisneros has a poem in her new collection called Making Love After Celibacy. It includes these lines that I just love. A female body ashamed of itself again. Not a girl's modesty this time. A woman's apology for erosion and weather. Well, you know, that poem was written 10 years ago. Uh-huh. And and I haven't been with a partner for 10 years, but that doesn't mean I don't have sexual desires. I don't have a sexual life. I do. And I feel more passionate now than I ever did. You know, I just like myself. Maybe nobody else will like me, but I like me. And and I hope when I'm uh, 10 years or 20 years older, I'll, I'll keep liking myself because I see older women in Mexico who, you know, have faces that look like uh, an old tree. And I like that face. Mm-hmm. And I hope I have that face, you know, with all the bark and weathered and the rings. Beautiful. So I think the most important thing is that I like how I look. And if I'm going to be with anybody, he better like how I look, too. And if he doesn't, he shouldn't be with me. Mm-hmm. When you when you think about the romances you've had, could you sort of tell in the moment the ones that were going to hook you, the ones that, that were going to linger, or did some of them surprise you? They all surprised me. You know, when when I was especially sexually active. I've been kind of in remission lately. <laughs> but uh, when I was especially young, you know, everybody was a possibility of taking me to some new place. And uh, I think for myself now, it's like, you know, um, I, I can go to such more profound places uh, in meditation, or my own practice of learning about my own spirituality. And uh, I just don't feel like I don't feel like it's going to happen with one person that's out there. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't that way when I was young. It was more like, where is that other half? You know, where is he? If I could only find that other person, you know, if, if that person comes into my life, sure, that's great. But if it doesn't, I'm perfectly fine. And I feel a, a sense of joy and completeness that I didn't feel when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And I have a lot of students that I mother. So I, I don't feel like, oh, if I'd only had a kid, 
No. Uh, there were moments, I have to be very honest, that I doubted. Did, did I make the right choice? That has happened in my life, especially when I was involved with somebody, especially somebody younger. And I would think, oh, I can't give this man a child. Usually when it dealt with my being in love with somebody and thinking, oh, if I was younger or if I'd met this person when I was younger, would I still make this choice? But um, now I have as many books as my mother had children, like maybe double. Mm -hmm. My mother had seven kids and I have like 14 books. Uh, I don't have the, the grandchildren and the kind of legacy that some of my friends have, uh, but I also don't have the problems that they have. I have six brothers. That's enough. That's a lot of problems right there. Sandra has lived alone for most of her adulthood. Though she's shared her space at times, she's written, with a flock of dogs that follow me like Mary's little lamb. In the mid-1990s, after the breakthrough success of The House on Mango Street and other accolades, including a MacArthur Genius Grant, Sandra bought a home in San Antonio, which became a gathering place of sorts for other writers, whose work she's supported through two nonprofits she founded. As you think about, like, what what is important to you as far as how you spend your money and what your money goes towards? How did you how did you build a philosophy for yourself of what to do once you had enough to share with others? Well, I throw a lot of it at my brothers, and it doesn't seem to help them one bit. And I give away a lot to other people in my life, like uh, scholarships and to help pay for private school for my employees' children and help them buy a house and help them put money away for later. You know, I can't change all of society in Mexico, but I can make the difference for one family. And, and I'm doing that for the, the family that works for me. And when you, when you give money to people who you're in relationship with, do you tend to sort of say, I'd like to do this for you. Tell me how much money you need. Do you wait for them to ask you? What's your style? I give them a gift. My father taught me, you never loan money to your family. You give it to them. Give away the most you can afford to never see again. And, you know, my employees, some of them, uh, like my assistant, has never seen the ocean. Hmm. So there are things that you can do, like say, okay, Ernesto, I need to hire you to help me travel to go to Colombia. Will you go with me? He won't take a vacation, but he will help me to go to Colombia. So it's the only way I can get him to go on a vacation, you know, whereas his wife, you know, I can send her on a vacation with the daughter. She will do it, but Ernesto will not. So I have to hire him and give him a job in order to force him to see the world outside of, of not even Mexico, outside of this state, mm. the state he lives in. So, you know, you can do things like that, that are uh, gifts and that you feel happy about. Uh, you can raise the quality of the community you live in. Sometimes we need to do that. We need to share. Um, you've mentioned your brothers a few times. I wonder, like, would you describe, do you feel close to your brothers now? Not anymore. I, I Since my mother died, they don't connect with me anymore. I thought we were closer. My mother was the hub. She would communicate to all of us. So when she died, which has been over um, 10 years, uh, I 
feel like my communication with them has disintegrated. So I, I don't feel like we're as close as I would like us to be. Mm-hmm. I still love them, but I feel sad. Sandra has not lived near her brothers since she left Chicago. She made a home for herself in San Antonio. Her mother visited her there just before she died. And Sandra thought she would spend the rest of her life there. But after more than 20 years, she decided to leave. I had a a spiritual voice wake me. And the voice said, you are not your house. That makes no sense to anyone but me because I was so involved in investing in the future of my house being an art center after my death and in keeping my foundations alive. And I understood that message to mean that I could walk away from everything, and I did. Hmm. That was the wake-up call. And I would not have done it if I had thought of it. Hmm. It came from, I don't know who, uh, but it didn't come from me. About how many times in your life have you gotten that kind of message? I've had lots of paranormal things happen to me since I was a child. Um, I've had um, mental messages like that when I was writing Caramelo, uh, once during meditation when I was in despair about writing the novel, because it took me nine years, and then one year post-production, 10 years if you count that. So I went to bed about the seventh year, and I was in despair. And I said, how much longer? And then I went to sleep and right when I woke up in that border between waking and sleeping, uh, I mentally uh, received a message that said, don't worry, you're almost there. Hmm. And I didn't know what it was talking about. I had this like, what? What's almost? And then I remembered what I had gone to sleep with. And I said, oh. That message, don't worry, you're almost there. It's not, it wasn't giving you an answer for how much longer. But it was telling you you didn't have to grit your teeth and force it. It was like you're you're on a path. You can relax. It was such a relief. It yeah. made me calm. And, uh, you know, I'm just very lucky that I have a big radar disc. That's what I call it. I just hmm. have a big radar disc. And it picks up uh, incredible things visually and through olfactory senses, too. Maybe if I'd grown up in Mexico, I would be a, a shamana or curandera or healer. But I'm not. I'm none of those things, and I'm all of those things when I write. Hmm. Do you think your radar disc is involved when you feel romantic attraction to someone? Yes, but it's always attracted to the wrong ones. <laughs> but maybe not, because you know, I think of people being as being exploding cigars or crowbars. Sometimes you meet a crowbar because that person needs to pull you out of a situation. But they're not going to stay. They, they did their work. Or sometimes they're lanchitas. How do you say lanchita in, in English? Like a little, uh, a little boat. Hmm. You know, they help you to cross a river. But you don't take the boat on your back once you're on the other shore. That's the phase of life Sandra's in now. Noticing the relationships that have come and gone and the ones that endure even after death. These are the relationships she tends to when she's meditating. I have a very personal way of meditating, which I don't know if is valid, but I, it works for me. Uh, what I do is I learned this when I was writing my novel. My father died, and one of the things that was uh, revelatory was that my father's love did not die, that I could continue to feel 
that he was sending me love and I could send him love. Hmm. And I thought, wow, how come we don't talk about this? So uh, what I do is something I learned then. Uh, I connect with my father or my mother, and I think of their face on the moon. And I, I think of them smiling, and I inhale that smile like a moonbeam. I take it in my heart, and then I exhale a smile back like a Mobius. And then I inhale it again. I see them smiling. And I exhale that light back. And I keep doing this till I calm down. And I think of this light that they're sending me, which is, you know, really pure love. And I wash it in my heart, wash away things that were hard for me today. I can move it in my body, the places that hurt. And I keep exhaling and inhaling. And then I invite my grandparents and their grandparents and parents and, you know, everybody. And I just think of all these people I'm connected to and surrounding me and calming me with their breath and making me feel I'm never alone. And then I ask to do work that honors them, that'll make them proud. And I ask for my ego to get out of the way because that's the only way I'm going to do good work. And then I thank them for courage and humility. And I sometimes I invite the Virgin de Guadalupe and I say, I want to be a door of light. Help me to speak and say something that someone out there needs to hear today. Could I please get a confirmation that I, I came through? And let me be of service to do something kind and compassionate to make up for all the disastrous things we're doing. And I close. That's my meditation. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, anybody can do it. Some people don't, doesn't work for them, but it works for me. That is Sandra Cisneros. Her new collection of poems, Woman Without Shame, is mostly what it sounds like. Audaciously, Sandra. Full of things you wish you knew when you were younger, but are also glad you're reading only now. You'll find a link to it in our show notes. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by Lily Clark. The rest of our team is Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz, Zoe Azoulay, Afi Yellow Duke, Lindsay Foster Thomas, and Andrew Dunn. The Reverend John Delure and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Instagram at Anna Sale Picks. That's P I C S. The show is at Death Sex Money on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you to Felicia Yu in Muckleteo, Oregon, for being a member of Death, Sex, and Money and supporting us with a monthly donation. Join Felicia and support what we do here by going to deathsexmoney.org slash donate. I'm a RuPaul's Drag Race addict, and I even ran into one of the RuPaul drag queens when I arrived at LAX. I thought that was very auspicious. Who was it? It was the Reverend Silky Nutmeg Ganache. <laughs> she was dressed as as herself, not as her alter ego. And she, she let mm -hmm. me take some selfies. Mm. Did she know your work? No. Why should she? 
Well, she should. Well, somebody <laughs> needs to tell her that, not me. Thank you for giving us some of your time during your week back home. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Um, This was so much fun. And if it can get me on RuPaul's Drag Race as a judge, I will forever be grateful. Oh, all right. Challenge accepted. We'll see what we can do. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. WNYC.